0: Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Carl Nellis. I'm your host and today we're talking with Dr. E.R. Truitt about her recent book, Medieval Robots, Mechanism, Magic, Nature, and Art. Dr. Truitt, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, we are really glad to have you uh, to talk about this book. It's a really exciting book. A couple things I loved about it. It's, it's, it's compact and accessible. But there's so much packed into it, and it covers and connects so many different things, so many different aspects of medieval studies, which is a broad, broad field. Um, I'm really excited to explore kind of the scope and the range of your work together. Before we get there, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about what brought you to this project and some of, uh, some of the work that went into it, maybe what first got you excited about Medieval robots.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I guess my interest in this topic goes back a pretty long time. I mean, even into my childhood, I had two kind of almost obsessive interests, and one was science fiction and the other was the Middle Ages. And Star Wars made a really big impression on me. The I spent a lot of time watching the the the, the droids and thinking about them and also, I would say the other film that made a big impression on me was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, because that was the that was the first time I learned that there was um there was a job that you could do that was called a, a medievalist. <laughs> yes. Right. And yes. I didn't know that. And I got and I thought to myself, wow, I would that would be really that'd be great if you could you could just study the Middle Ages. So. Those were So I had a kind of long-standing interest in this sort of general subject matter. And then, um, you know, in college, I was fortunate enough to be able to study literature and history, and so I kind of became familiar with a lot of the literary examples, um, and even some of the specific ones that I talk about in my book, but just examples in medieval literature of the the sort of strange and surprising things you can find there. Um, yes, yes. And I had a, a really great advisor in as an undergraduate who then moved to Harvard, and this is um, mm. Catherine Park. And she had been in the history department um, at Wellesley where I was an undergraduate, and then she moved to the history of science department. At Harvard, and and I ended up doing some research for her as a research assistant um, when I after I'd gotten a, a master's degree in medieval history, and I didn't really know what the history of science was until then, um, but that kind of got me interested in thinking about how in thinking about how I could put my sort of long standing interests in the relationship between science technology and the imagination and the medieval period how i might be able to put those two things together so that's kind of where what, what how i figured out that i could do
0: this right and is there something particular that really got you rolling on this project
1: so honestly it was the uh yeah the um the alabaster chamber in the, in the Roman de Troyes, where these golden humanoid figures are doing these incredible and amazing things they, that are both incredible spectacle, right? The sort of virtuosity of what they can do is really compelling, but also they have a very specific set of functions in terms of keeping a certain kind of order, maintaining a certain kind of space, disciplining and sort of surveilling the people that are among them and yes. I just that just really reminded me of C-3PO. <laughs> That's
0: what I was thinking when you said yeah, that. Yeah I mean that yeah. to me
1: got, that was my sort of moment when I, when I thought oh my god this is great. Um, so that was really the sort of big thing that I got interested in and then I did some some sort of reading into the topic and I I went to my advisor and I said this is what I want to write my dissertation on. Um and she was really supportive and I think that initially she thought that it might be difficult for me to find enough material. So she was encouraging but I think she I think she had some some concerns about that and uh the truth is I found there's so much more that uh, you know could have been in the book. There was so much I had to leave out. So yeah. Anyway, so that's how I got interested in the topic. That's sort of it. Kind of spoke to me as the sort of perfect way to combine things that have interested me and questions that have interested me for a really long time.
0: Yeah. Great. So let's dive into what you then what you then have created out of all, out of that study and that interest, uh, and start with where you begin in chapter one in the early medieval period and, and in Western Europe. The only contact with automatons was as something foreign. Can you jump in and talk a little bit about uh, notions of foreignness and how that shaped uh, the early presence of uh, automatons and and robots in Western Europe?
1: Um, Absolutely. So one of the things that I sketch out really briefly is how these objects uh, have a really long history that goes back even before the m- Middle Ages, back to antiquity, and that there's a an established tradition, especially in the Greek-speaking world, of making mechanical objects that are um, quite intricate and uh, and spectacular, and that the, the we we have texts that are from the sort of 300 years before the common era that detail how to make these objects. We have, um, we have records of them in other historical documents. And then what happens is that, that those texts and that, that set of interests and that know-how um, remains really vibrant throughout the Greek-speaking world. Um, so, what becomes later the Byzantine Empire, and then areas that come under uh Islamic political control as well they um those areas those texts get translated and they get compounded and added to and amplified and and there 's a lot of new engineering so that you what you have yeah. is that actually in the arabic speaking world and the greek speaking world and then also in Central Asia in the later in the Mongol period, and then I don't get into China, but that is a a sort of rich story of its own, that these areas all have a really established um, set of, I mean, they know how to make these objects, right? They have a certain level of engineering knowledge that's quite sophisticated um and then so you get these really spectacular objects like giant water clocks with all kinds of musical figures and moving figures. You get programmable fountains, musical automata, you know, pleasure gardens and a lot of those and so it's really only in the Latin speaking world that they that they don't know how to make these objects. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um so that's the kind of background to why it is that in the Latin Christian West, in the Latin speaking world, the only contact with these objects was through foreign contact. Right. So um so that meant that these were for Latins seen as they were always foreign and that gets there's a, a, a several different kinds of ways of thinking about foreignness and what right. you know and and we see that these that automata kind of get mobilized to think about different kinds of foreignness so there's the fact that they're from places that have different religions so there's yep. a sort of moral element of concern and also a sense of Latin Christian superiority that we see get kind of mobilized in certain ways so that piety can trump science. And that also there's a in the natural philosophical tradition, um, a really kind of heavily theorized um, way of thinking about the the globe and how right. um, different parts of the world have different natural objects and marvels and things that occur there. And one of the things that explains this um, is that because of the orientation of planets and celestial bodies at different parts of the globe, those celestial influences kind of imbue plants, animals, gemstones with particular powers. Right. Right. And that going alongside that, what was seen as the margins of the world, and that it could be the Western fringes, certainly, but definitely also the Eastern and the Southern fringes. And this is fringes from the point of view of somebody writing in, like, Northern France. Yeah. um, That those that you get more natural variation in those areas, and you get more spectacular and powerful natural substances. Right. So that for Latin Christians who were trying to understand how these objects worked, the ones that they either saw when they traveled to foreign places or the ones that foreign dignitaries brought as gifts um, or that they'd heard about, they rationalized it as, it makes sense that these really marvelous objects come from these places, and they, and one of the reasons why it makes sense is that all these other marvelous things come from these places as
0: well. And in, in the first chapter, you illustrate that a little bit, and that way of understanding the world and mapping the world with the, the TO map. Can you tell us a little bit about the TO map and how that demonstrates the kind of thinking you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so the TO map is... a. Uh, A cartographic convention. It's a way of um, displaying visually a worldview that places Jerusalem as the center. Of the world and everything else radiating out from that. And these maps often have the sort of head of Jesus and possibly also the sort of arms and legs or the hands and feet kind (laughs) of around the map to sort of show that really this is a very um, particular Christian spiritual geography. Um, So that's a way of seeing the world in which. the, because Jerusalem is the, at the center and the things that are compared to that, right, Amia or Paris is quite a bit farther away. And so it makes sense in that worldview that holy, the things that are closer to the holiest places are going to have the most power
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that they there's a way in which this makes sense both as a Christian worldview and a Christian explanation of these marvels um, and also one that is natural philosophical in its underpinnings.
0: Right. And with a kind of worldview that would. Use a TO map. One of the things when you're talking about the margins and the fringes that you touch on is the way that Ireland was discussed as a margin and a fringe on that world. Can you touch on that a little bit? And who said that? Who was talking that way?
1: So, because Ireland and also later actually Iceland as well, um, yeah. and think, you know, the Orkneys and um, Ultima Thule, these lands, shall we say, were just as much. Um, on the seen as kind of on the fringe of Christendom and sort of the the sort of known world, yeah. because they were also far away, they could equally be the home of marvelous objects or yeah. powerful creatures. Now, I haven't found really any examples of automata that are set in these kind of far Celtic or northern lands from the same period that I'm looking at.
0: Hmm, so yeah.
1: so it seems like in terms of the cultural representations of these objects, they definitely are seen as coming from the eastern direction, not from right. the far western fringes.
0: Right. And and a couple of times now you've you used the word marvel and in the book you you talk about how important that was almost as a category of thought or a way of understanding what these Objects were what these ideas were. Can you talk a little bit about Marvel and and Mm. the significance of that term?
1: So um, Marvel and wonder are both really important in terms of uh, I think Thinking about automata in the middle ages and they both um, Can be seen in this period as as nouns as things and also as an affective response to something. Um, and that something could be um, – it could be something that was ma- human-made, whether it's an artistic performance. You can mar- marvel at an artistic performance or a piece – some other piece of art. Um, you can also have that response to natural objects or natural phenomena, like yeah. the Northern Lights, for example, or um, an eclipse. So automata are interpreted there. They are seen as marvels and mm-hmm. there's a, a range of re, sort of emotional responses that goes from amazement and desire and pleasure to could be terror or um, discomfiture or uncertainty. And that. Is in part due to the fact that they are always described as being just so highly produced, um, mm-hmm. so that there's a again in the kind of artistic or aesthetic value that they they have as luxury objects. They are really quite beautiful to behold. At least that's the the commonplace in the descriptions. But they also can be surprising in terms of what they do or even disconcerting in terms of what they do. So they contain a multitude and evoke a multitude of responses.
0: Who was it that when he encountered some uh, automata, he said, I wasn't scared. Right,
1: And right. that was
0: really significant.
1: So that's Liud Brand of Cremona. And that's a really interesting um, kind of encounter with a particular kind of automata. And so he's talking about the throne of Solomon, which, first of all, is an artifact that no longer exists. But yeah. it seems that it was built because we have... Also, a description of it that closely matches Liudprand's description in a Byzantine text um, that sort of details exactly how this works uh, and how it's used in diplomatic cere- and courtly ceremony. Mm-hmm. So Liudprand, he's a he's an envoy and he's traveling from Italy to Constantinople. And he needs to make sure that he makes a good impression and he's writing this account of what happened, you know, after the fact, right? For his for his um his patron. And so he describes what happens when you're presented to the emperor. And so what happens is you you go into the throne room in the in the palace and you make a series of um, prostrations before the emperor and at the last one as you get close to, like the closest to the throne you have artificial lions that are roaring and kind of <laughs> moving their tails and uh, it seems like maybe sticking their tongues out and then you have a um, gilded tree that has artificial birds of varying species And it he says that each one utters the cry that's appropriate to its species. So you have a whole symphony of birdsong. And then you have the roaring lions. And then you have the emperor's throne with the emperor on it, which in between the sort of last time that you bow before him and then look up, the throne has gone up to the ceiling and the emperor has changed his clothes. And he says... So Pran says in his account of this that he was neither surprised nor terrified by this experience and these objects because he had made it his business beforehand to find out what was going to happen um, so that he could prepare himself. And I find that really evocative because, of course, he's trying to demonstrate that he's a prepared and sort of unflappable courtier. Right. But he also admits that for somebody who wasn't prepared, this would be very surprising and very unusual. And again, it just emphasizes at no court in the Latin Christian West did they have these kinds of objects. Right. These were completely, completely foreign. So I, th- I find that really fascinating. And I think that there's this sense of both amazement and and also suspicion yeah. at the same time that these objects yeah. can evoke. And the other thing that I find interesting is that when we do get these accounts, like Liudprand and a couple of others in which somebody from the Latin Christian West is encountering one of these objects, like an actual object that they try to describe it in familiar technological terms. So they'll say it turned like the wheel of a chariot or a mill. Um, Liudprin says, uh, I can't imagine how this was done unless possibly using some kind of wine press. You know, and so I think <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that's really telling as well in that you know, you have these writers who they are interested in trying to think through how this might work. I think they yeah. they think their audience will also be interested. And so they kind of take a stab at it. Right. Uh, you know, and but they also were not um, usually shy about saying, I can't really say how this was done right. or maybe it was like this.
0: And one of the things I love so much about the book, really throughout, is how you tell these you know, tell these stories, examine these texts, and talk about the way that they engage different kinds of fields of knowledge, mm. or they position automata as as relating to a particular field of knowledge, and the way that that shifts and that change changes. And that's one of the things you kind of set up at the beginning. So maybe we could step back there, and you could talk about the different. Um, the different kinds of fields of knowledge or ways of knowing mm. that um, that automata were fit into at different times, and kind of what the maybe what the historical arc of those different mm. ways of talking about automata are.
1: Sure. So again, just emphasizing that these are objects that are if not commonplace, certainly widely fabricated throughout much of the rest of the world in the Middle Ages. In the Latin Christian West, that level of knowledge of mechanical engineering simply wasn't available. Right. So what happens is that you get objects that are unfamiliar trying to be described according to a completely different epistemic framework. Right and i find that really fascinating because it sort of shows uh actually to me the incredible flexibility um and capaciousness of natural philosophy in in the latin christian west so there are a couple of different ways that these objects get described as as working and they that touches on different again these different fields of knowledge as you say um, so, aside, however, from the kind of once-in-a-while, you know, lead prancing, saying, I think it's like maybe a wine press, how this works, or a, a mill wheel, you don't actually get the field of uh, engineering technology. Right. That doesn't become mobilized until later in the 13th century. Yeah. So, before that, what you have are explanations that, either ascribe the the ability to make these objects to natural philosophy, and by that I mean the the kind of text-based, deeply learned tradition of trying to understand the laws of nature and also the properties of natural objects, even if those properties aren't immediately apparent. The idea being that if you could understand, if you knew of, were familiar with, say, the deeply foreign objects or substances that were, as we've discussed earlier, already believed to be imbued with kind of powers that were unavailable elsewhere, that you could use that knowledge and those latent abilities or potential, that latent, you know, that potential in those objects to do things like make a statue that had discernment and could move and could talk. So that's one field of knowledge. Another is astral science. And one of the important aspects that my book gets at is that the expansion of the quadrivium, the four branches of the liberal arts that are music, geometry, arithmetic, and astral science, um, in the medieval period, in the Latin-speaking world, is really important to this story. Because one of the things that happens is that you have knowledge, um, from Greek texts and also Arabic and Hebrew texts about celestial bodies and about observation and measurement that also dealt with prediction and divination and horoscopes and the zodiac so that there's an understanding that the power of the planets and the stars moving and again the influences that they had on on earthly things Which, again, could be imbuing the gemstone with a particular power, or it could be exerting a particular, an influence over an individual, or it was also believed perhaps could be used to make a statue that had prophetic knowledge and make it reveal that knowledge. So that's another field of knowledge that gets mobilized to explain how these objects could be made. Um, or these objects become exemplary of the of the potential of these fields. Then you also get uh, concerns about demons and demonic knowledge. <laughs> um, so that there were many people who thought that these objects could only work if a demon had been either somehow trapped in the object, right. or, or that the demon... Could conveyed or was forced to surrender its knowledge of how to make such an object to the person who had summoned it so as such they that means that Ottomans are really depending on context they can be seen as the the manifestation of incredible erudition or intellectual hubris or really immoral activity,
0: right? Like demonic contact or something exactly, like that. Exactly. Yeah. In in chapter three, you tell a, a really interesting story that connects a lot of these.
1: So he, this is uh, Gerbert of Ariac, who yeah. was uh, born probably sometime in the or first half of the tenth century, to parents who were probably free. But poor, and it seems that he was given over to um, a Benedictine monastery in near where he lived in the south of France to be a, an oblate, to be raised at the monastery, and eventually take his vows. So, Gerbert has this these incredibly humble beginnings, and he ends up uh, when he dies, he's pope. Uh, Pope Sylvester yeah. II. So there's already a great, that's a great trajectory. And, and so what I'm gonna do, so there's, he's a really complex, he's a really interesting figure for a couple of reasons. And one is that his biography is already fascinating. But then what gets told about him or added to his biography after he dies yeah. is also really, um, illustrative about these of these questions about knowledge and and how it gets used Mm -hmm. so to briefly outline gerber's the sort of facts of his biography that that we know and most of this comes from um, his students and, and contemporaries who uh who wrote of him and we have their uh their materials so he He grows up at a Benedictine monastery, and then when he's, we don't really know at what age, but at some point, he's impressed the abbot, he's really bright, and the abbot arranges for Gerbert to become the protege of the Count of Barcelona. He's a really powerful, uh, powerful ruler in, in Catalonia, so he sends, so when the, and the when the count was coming through on business, he visited, Gerber left with him and went to study at a different monastery um, that had a really, really big library, um, and it was a, an incredibly well-established Benedictine institution. Um, that also was a hub of intellectual and economic and political activity. A lot of people kind of traveled through there. So Gerber was immediately introduced to a much deeper curriculum in terms of what he could read and study, and also a lot of different people and different kinds of people. So he stays there for a while, and then the abbot of his Catalonian monastery Um, takes him to Rome and introduces him to the Pope. So this is really, he's impressing, he has powerful patrons, and he's really impressing all the right people. He ends up being engaged as tutor to the Holy Roman Emperor's heir, and he stays there for a couple of years. And then he moves to northern France, to um, the cathedral at Reims, which is a, which is really an, a very important center for learning and also incredibly well-connected politically and sort of culturally. So he ends up teaching there at the school for a really long time and running the school. And one of the things that he was known for was actually expanding the curriculum in the quadrivium. So his time in Catalonia had put him in a position where he had access to materials on astral science, um, on celestial observation, and other topics in the quadrivium, as well as mathematics that weren't available or being taught elsewhere. And so he started teaching those, and he got this incredible reputation as a scholar and a really gifted teacher, and he, he remained... Uh, somebody who had a lot of powerful patrons, including at one point the King of France. Um, he also irritated some, some people. <laughs> he yeah. irritated some people that he shouldn't have. Kind of like the way that Abelard, when he's in the monastery, where he tell, they try to poison him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There were a couple of times when Gerbert kind of got run out of town, you know, on a rail just ahead of them mob coming after him, Um, but he ends up also at the court of the Holy Roman Emperor, not his former pupil, but actually the son of his former pupil, Um, Mm -hmm. and he has this reputation for being a really good counselor and also um, a really gifted scholar still, and he he remains in contact with scholars throughout Europe. Um, he makes scientific objects like viewing tubes and armillary spheres and other kinds of teaching aids. Eventually, he becomes bishop of Ravenna, and then he becomes pope. He's not pope for a terribly long time, only about four years. But he's pope over the first millennium, which was a an important moment symbolically. Um, and then he dies in 1003 after saying mass in a church in Rome. Yeah. Okay, so that's his life. After he dies, he has this totally amazing reputation. So immediately after he dies, people talk about how wonderful he was, how gifted he was as being a, as a teacher and as a scholar, uh, also as a, as a reformer in the church. And then about 80 years later, uh, in part because of the background of the investiture contest he becomes emblematic for certain groups he becomes emblematic of everything that is wrong with the papacy what what happens is that his time spent in Catalonia at the you know at this monastery becomes rewritten as A time that he spent in Muslim controlled Spain where he studied forbidden books of where he studied new material in the quadrivium alongside forbidden books of occult wisdom and that he sells his soul to the devil for this knowledge. Right. So he's this absolutely Faustian figure. And that his bargain with the devil is what accounts for his rapid rise and his his powerful patrons and his the power that he himself amasses and that he uses this knowledge to do things like uncover treasure and gain more power and that he creates a prophetic head Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that he gets to tell him about the future and that his hubris leads him to misunderstand its most important pronouncement which is about how he, how and where he is going to die that's pretty heady stuff
0: <laughs>
1: um so he, i find that that is really an a sort of incredible trajectory because along the way the talking head that he is credited or blamed for making initially it's that he did this by summoning a demon and that he has all this knowledge because he is has trafficked with the devil. But then later in the 12th century, you get slightly different versions in which, yes, it's believed that he was a wicked pope and did things that were frowned upon, but that he used the legitimate arts of the quadrivium to make his prophetic head, that you wouldn't need to rely on a demon. Because by that point, it's understood that accepted astral science and completely accepted course of study in the quadrivium could lead to the knowledge that would allow for further prediction. Right. Um, and so that, I think, is also really interesting. So poor Gerbert, like he doesn't actually get rehabilitated.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> it's just <laughs> just that the the talking head gets rehabilitated. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that. Yeah. So that's just kind of one way in which these objects can really be um, they get mobilized for a lot of reasons. And so just because, right, just because the idea about, you know, how a prophetic head could work, just because it's demons in 1080, but by 1130, they know that you don't need demons. They don't say there was no talking head. They say you just don't need that. You can use this different available technology to get the same result.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I really love about that story is the way you use it to talk about the differences between automata that are for public display Mm. versus talking about automata that are for personal benefit. So, like, this, this talking head for Javert that would tell him the future, there's kind of this difference between the lines in front of the emperor and talking mm. about a public spectacle or a marvel in public versus this kind of strange working in private that gives someone personal advantages.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because they're such different kinds of objects. Yeah. But they're both about getting power or consolidating it. And I think that, you know, I think that one of the things that's really interesting is that even as the ability to build more complex machines takes off in the Latin Christian West in the 13th century, so that by the end of the 13th century, you're getting objects that are built in northern France by local artisans. You still have this additional tradition of the talking heads, the the private counselor in some way that continues both in literature and that you have accounts of Roger Bacon and his talking head in Elizabethan drama. But Mm -hmm. also in the early modern period, I'm thinking about the the Friar automaton that's a praying monk <laughs> that was yeah. made for Philip II, and that's a private object, right. right? So that you there are these, you do have public and private, and they look different, uh, mm-hmm. and they do, do different things. And then also there's, it's also so culturally specific because one of the things I only mentioned in passing in my book, but there's evidence that these kinds of objects were also built in India,
0: hmm. in northern yep. India,
1: in the 11th century, and but these yep. are installed in courtly settings, but for more private, in more private spaces within a palace. Interesting. Um, so they were they seem to be more objects for erotic titillation.
0: Mm, yeah, thinking about automata in in the palace or in a courtly setting. Can you talk a little bit about? even the connection between automata and power.
1: Yeah. So actually the place where we get the first, um, the first examples of objects that were actually created in the Latin Christian West. Um, Yeah. And unfortunately none of them exist anymore, but we have these um, accounts of how they were built just from the, the, the household archives for basically expenditures. And a couple of other different kinds of texts. So Adat is in northern France, and it is, or it was in the 13th century, um, part of the county of Artois. And the count of Artois was related to the king of France. And yep. this, uh, this particular count, Robert II, acted as regent for his cousin, who was the king of the kingdom of Naples in Sicily. And so yeah. he spent seven or eight years in southern Italy and Sicily in places that we know had elaborate pleasure gardens with mechanical fountains, with mm-hmm. mechanical objects. We know that there are palaces that had birds, for example, et cetera. And he comes back to his estate, in northern France and completely overhauls it with the help of yep. some people that he brought with him from southern Italy and Sicily. And we don't actually know a ton about about these people, but, you know, we know that one of them a physician, one of them was an expert in grafting trees, mm. one of them was a kind of just very capable administrator. And so he completely overhauls this estate, and he, doesn't, he moves entire villages and relocates them. He... Changes the shape of forests. He drains some marshland and diverts some of the, the rivers and stuff. And one of the things that he does is he installs the same kinds of objects that it seems like he must have either seen or heard of when he was in Naples and Sicily. So he has a particular room in his chateau that has kind of massive aviary and it mm-hmm. seems like reading from the reading the documents, it seems like it had both live birds and mechanical birds in it together,
0: mm-hmm. so that you
1: would see kind of both and be a little surprised at sort of or tricked for a minute, kind of trying to distinguish between them. And he had right. in one part of his estate, kind of going towards a sort of lake, kind of water feature area. He had a series of monkeys that were were outside. And it seems like they made kinds of parodic movements or possibly sort of burlesque movements. Um, Mm. And they were covered in badger skin and they would have to be (laughs) repelted or refurbished every few years. And you can see that in the archives. So he had that and he had fountains and and all kinds of other things. And then he died uh, not long after. But his heir, his daughter, who was his heir, continued um, and kept up these entertainments, as they were called, um, engines for amusement and added to them over the years. So, you know, a new fountain or regilding the birds or, you know, uh, at one point horns were added to the monkeys to make them look more like satyrs. Yep. So, but part of what, what he, what Robert was doing and what his daughter, Mao was doing, are, are doing is they're both related to the French court. me to the ruling family they these are the sort of elite aristocracy and there was nowhere else no other palace that was like this at the time yeah they're entertaining the king and the queen they're entertaining the dauphin. they're entertaining other nobles and one of the things that these objects do is they just kind of extend this courtly display and what is called by our historians is this culture of conspicuous virtuosity mm-hmm. in a way that really recalls the emperor of Byzantium or that recalls, you know, the Abbasid Caliph. So that mm-hmm. they are making a very unambiguous statement about their position and their wealth. And this estate, Adan, remains famous. Throughout mm-hmm. the 14th century, even when it uh, seems to have fallen into some disrepair at times due to the Hundred Years' War. And I know one scholar thinks that probably Chaucer went there mm. and it may have – that that may account for some of the things that we see in, say, the Squire's Tale. Right. Um, but, yeah, so this is a really famous estate and it gets written about and kind of memorialized in – courtly literature in France and then it has a sort of renaissance in the 15th century by this point it's under it's part of the Duchy of Burgundy and it becomes under um, Philip III it becomes one of his favorite estates Um, he completely overhauls it and he not only refurbishes the engines of amusement but he also installs new ones, and they take on a different cast. You know, under Robert II and Mao and the people who came after them, these are, they're amusing, right, or delightful, even if they're also surprising. But they're not terrifying. So, you know, you might be surprised for a second when you can't figure out the difference between a mechanical bird and a real bird. Um, Or you might think for a second, are those real monkeys? but that's different from what comes in the 15th century with Philip III which is a really expanded park and series of of automata entire rooms that you would move through that would do things like throw dirt on you and sprinkle water <laughs> at you and like yeah. peop- and like mechanical objects would be hitting you with sticks and that I think also really emphasizes the ch- some of the changes in courtly, courtly spectacle and courtly culture, you know, over a hundred and fifty years. And and of course, Philip the Third is a he's a partic- he's an incredibly powerful and incredibly wealthy prince. And Aidan, I mean, he had he had menageries with you know lions and ostriches and all kinds of other exotic um, animals in the he had incredible um, beautifully illustrated manuscript books and he had incredible jewels and then he has one chateau
0: that's
1: it's a wunderkammer it's this you know cabinet of wonders but they're all technological marvels and so I think for him it also having that estate and making it so over the top and just unlike anything else was also a way for him to unequivocally state his own power and his wealth and status.
0: Mm -hmm. When you're wrapping up the book, you bring it to clocks and clockwork in a way that's really fascinating and the way that kind of natural philosophy gave way to engineering. And there's that one phrase where you say he kind of invented the clock, uh, he invented, you know, kind of imagined what it would be, and then he left it to the artisans.
1: Oh, right, um, in Strasbourg.
0: That phrase was really powerful in terms of the trajectory of understanding uh, technology and automata mm. that you lay out in the course of the book.
1: I love that um, that piece. That's from the – so the clock was first built in the middle of the 14th century, mm-hmm. and, and it had really uh, incredible automata on it, and it also was a very important civic symbol in Strasbourg, and it had a rooster that crowed. And it had a, a sort of pageant of the three magi yep. pay, giving gifts and paying their respects to the the virgin and the baby Jesus. And then the clock falls into some disrepair in the 15th, 16th centuries, and then it gets rebuilt in mm. the later 16th century. The person who's in charge of kind of overseeing this, and it's, it's made taller, and it's also made much more complicated in terms of Mm. the astronomical and horological complications that are on the clock so that you get more kind of bells and carillons, you get multiple trains of automata from not just two, you get, you know, I think like five or six. And um, and the person who's in charge, Conrad Dazapodius, is a mathematician at the university, and he oversees this project and then he and he takes part in some of it and then he writes this account of of the creation of the clock Mm -hmm. and what was done and he and he talks about leaving things to the artisans and he calls this text in this text he he invokes hero of alexandria who was one of these early greek automaton makers Mm -hmm. who in the first century before the common era wrote texts on how to make automata and in it, he argued for the importance philosophically of the mechanical arts and kind of arguing against what Aristotle had said. And so then you have 1600 years later you have Conrad Dazapodius doing the same thing, talking about how important the mechanical arts are and the Mm -hmm. artisans are Mm -hmm. to creating this incredibly complex piece of machinery that has, it was the most, by some people will say it's the most complex piece of engineering at the time in Europe, or at least certainly machinery. And that it's not, a toy that's meant to delight you. It tells you where you are Mm -hmm. in space and in time. It reminds you of the sacrifices of Jesus. It reminds you of kind of Christian theology. It reminds you of salvation. And, Mm. and so it has this incredible import that is moral and theological and philosophical and that it that that can't be done without mechanics and mechanical engineering. Right. And so when he talks about, you know, letting the artisans do it, he's really talking about how important it is to, to value and, and really respect that work as critical to understanding nature
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to making into using that knowledge to make life better in some way. Yeah. Um. And I think that also, I mean, You know, there I'm really echoing what Pam Long has said about the rise of artisanal practitioners and the importance of artisans um, in terms of furthering technological development and knowledge Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: in that in this sort of period of, say, 1300 to 1600.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's so much more in the book that we've just leapt over. We haven't talked about, we haven't really talked about Neoplatonism. We haven't talked about Mm. uh, the triad principle. We haven't talked about a whole chapter of the book on the way that automata stand between the living and the dead and between the what's alive and what's not alive and how it just troubles thinking about those categories. But I think we'll have to leave that for readers of the book to explore. If we could just hear, I think we'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing now...
1: Right now I'm working on two projects. Uh, one is an article, and that is about how the mechanical clock becomes mobilized in the production of a temporal narrative that mm. can unify past, present, and even future uh, in the late Middle Ages, and how it, I see it as people trying to use a new technology when the codex is not able to satisfy that desire for a, a kind of cohesive master narrative. Yeah. So that's one project that I'm working on. And then the other project, this the sort of larger monograph, has to do with Roger Bacon and his theory of technology and then also how the later receptions or recreations of Roger Bacon and his reputation as a
0: as a visionary
1: are important to understanding the the role of technology in the progress narrative.
0: Well, we will we will keep our eyes out for that. And we will certainly as you're hoping you publish, we will be hoping that you publish (laughs) it as well. Um, So we've been talking with Dr. E.R. Truitt about her book, Medieval Robots, Mechanism, Magic, Nature and Art. Um, Ellie, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much, Carl. I've really
0: enjoyed this.